Hey guys, just a quick message before we get started. Now, as you know, Babel Beard Company is the official beard company of the American History Podcast. And as this episode airs, it is the holiday season. So if you're looking for some amazing beard oil for that special someone in your life, or any sort of beard product for that matter, maybe for yourself, head over to the Fable Beard Company and check out their entire line of products. Now, when it comes to beard products, I myself am particularly fond of the beard oils that are infused with CBD. Now, in the past, I've made you aware of the roaster and the grower, but they came out with a new one that is just miles and miles above anything out there. This is the Baker. Its scent profile is fresh baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and a hint of cinnamon spice. Uh, I'm telling you, you're going to love this. And, of course, it's got the full-spectrum CBD, which you will swear by once you've tried it. They have this and every scent they carry in beard oil, beard balm, butter, and conditioner. You're going to love it, and that special lady in your life will as well. So head over to Fable Beard Company at www.fablebeardco.com for the regular products and fablebeardcompany.com for their entire line of CBD-infused items. Use coupon code SEAN15 to get 15% off the total order. And by the way, you can use that code again and again. It's not just simply for the first order. Now, on with the show. The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 22, Wilson and the Paris Peace Conference. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Season three, gosh, we're moving right along. It's amazing. Believe it or not, we're more than halfway through season three, and by the time you're listening to this episode, we'll be getting ready to celebrate Christmas and ring in the new year. So let me encourage you to visit the website and sign up for my email updates. You can also see the sources that we use to create the current season, and if you want to purchase one of them, they're hyperlinked, and they'll take you directly to Amazon. Now, if you want to support the show, there are several ways that you can do that. First, you can sign up for the Patreon. For the price of about a coffee a month, you'll get access to the bonus episodes, the bonus series, 1983, the year the world almost ended, scripts of every show, and you get the shows commercial free. And I have to say, the Patreon-only series, 1983, it's fantastic, even if I do say so myself. We're just getting into the meat of that series, so this is the perfect time to sign up. You have somewhere between five to eight hours of content to consume that's unavailable anywhere else. Now, if you're not into Patreon, but you still want to support the show, you can do so by entering Amazon from our site every time you shop. Doing so will cause them to send us a few pennies, and it costs you absolutely nothing. Just click on one of the hyperlinked sources over at the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com. Even if you don't purchase the item, we still get some money. So thanks for that. And with the holiday season here, let's, let's be honest, we're all purchasing stuff on Amazon. Now, finally, do you have a question? Or maybe just want to interact with me. You can send me an email at sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter. The handle is at AmericanHistCast. And we're also now on Instagram and Facebook. So if you want to see my ugly mug, just head over to the gram and say hello. All right. So the song of the week for this week is I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles by Henry Burr and Albert Campbell. We'll see you on the other side. I'm building castles high. They're born anew, 
Let's start off this episode talking Wilson and Congress. Post-war, his popularity in the world was unprecedented. The president was seen as a savior by millions in Europe. Now, believe it or not, the same could not be said of opinions back home. First of all, 1918 was an off year. Only congressional seats and one-third of Senate seats were up for re-election. Now, in those off years, as they are called, the president's party traditionally loses seats in Congress. The same held true for Wilson and the Democrats lost control of Congress that fall. Now, you could say part of this was due to Wilson breaking the bipartisan truce held during the war to appeal for a Democratic victory. Instead, the move backfired, and Republicans gained their majority in Congress. Thus, Wilson's clout was damaged when negotiating an end to the war in Paris. He was a wounded politician, and this point was noticed by both the French and the British. As if they weren't already upset with Wilson, the Republicans were infuriated when the president personally traveled to the Paris Peace Conference in December of 1918. Now, up to this point, no sitting American president had traveled to Europe. To make matters worse, Republican senators were excluded from the peace delegation. As you can imagine, this wasn't going to win Wilson any allies amongst the opposition party in the Senate. This was, without a doubt, a fatal mistake. Remember, all treaties have to be approved by the Senate, and the Senate was now in the hands of the opposing party. So with that out of the way, Let's look at the actual conference, which started January 18, 1919, in Paris. The conference was attended by leaders and representatives from 32 different nations, but it was controlled by the so-called Big Four leaders. These were, of course, Wilson for the uh, United States, David Lloyd George for the United Kingdom, George Clemenceau for France, and Vittorio Orlando represented Italy. Now, each of these leaders had his own agenda, and none of the other three embraced Wilson's 14 points, despite his enormous popularity in Europe. So let's look at these various nations and their agendas in a bit more depth. First, the United Kingdom. Prime Minister Lloyd George, as you can probably imagine, was most concerned with maintaining the territory and unity of the British Empire. But it had some other goals, amongst which were to ensure the security of France and to remove the threat of the German Navy to the Royal Navy. Secondly, you had the French. Prime Minister George Clemenceau's main goal was to weaken Germany both militarily and economically. He went so far as to seek guarantees from both the Americans and the British that they would come to France's aid should another German attack take place. Remember, the Germans had invaded France twice in the years in the 40 years before 1919. Then finally, you have the Italians. Now, the Italians had originally been part of the Triple Alliance with Germany and Austria, but they were lured away in 1915 by the Allies and their promise that Italy would gain territories should they prevail. Now, some of these territories are part of Italy today, such as Trentino and Trieste. They were also, and to me, uh, this is an odd offer, promised control of the Turkish city of Antalya, which the Italians lost in the aftermath of the Turkish War of Independence in the years immediately after World War I. Now, as for Wilson, 
he called for an end, or at least a reduction, of imperialism. As you can probably guess, that didn't go down well with either France or Britain. The delegates knew that the masses of people in the Allied countries wanted Germany to be punished for the war. Wilson was alone in demanding fair treatment. In the meantime, Europe seemed to be slipping into anarchy with communists threatening to come to power in several countries, including Germany. However, Wilson's primary goal wasn't to ensure Germany was treated fairly. Instead, it was, of course, the establishment of his pet project, the League of Nations. Thus, he was forced to compromise on the issue of self-determination for the Central Powers colonies. These lands were not given directly to the Allies. Instead, they were titled Mandates, and the Allies would act as trustees, not imperial overlords. Or that was at least the idea. Now, the reality, of course, was this was um, old pre-war style colonialism simply called something else or simply dressed up as something else. Now, interestingly, Europeans uh, supported the League Covenant, the constitution for the new League of Nations. The chief aim of this new organization was collective security. It called on all members to protect the territorial integrity and political independence of all other members. Article 10 of the Versailles Treaty created the League of Nations. Now, the League would have five permanent members, the United States, France, Britain, Italy, and Japan, or at least that was the idea. 42 allied and neutral countries would meet in a general assembly. But, and this is probably not a surprise, Germany and Russia were excluded. Thus, in many ways, the League served as the blueprint, at least in some ways, for its successor organization, the United Nations. Now, a major aspect of the treaty was Article 231, known as the War Guilt Clause. It placed uh, sole blame for the war on Germany. Germany was ordered to pay reparations to the Allies, totaling $31 billion over the next 30 years, and it was forced to accept severe military restrictions as well as the loss of territory. Needless to say, the seeds of future conflict were being sown by this action. Remember, Germany was not bombed out and destroyed. Government propaganda was telling the people that they were winning, and then suddenly, boom, They surrendered and are forced to accept a humiliating treaty, blaming them for everything. A second outcome of the treaty was that self-determination was granted to the new nations of Poland, Finland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. However, the peoples of Europe's colonies in Africa, India, and Asia were left frustrated by the fact that Wilson's idealism and his promotion of self-determination was not applied to them. One of the nationalists left angry and frustrated by this was Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam. Now, we'll be discussing him in much more depth in uh, Season 5. Suffice it to say for now that it's an interesting question to ask, or to wonder, what might have been had the Americans, prior to entering the war and saving both the French and the British from a defeat, the hands of the Germans, been forced, uh, forced both to agree to a plan to free their colonies? Sadly, we'll never know. Now, as you can probably imagine, the treaty faced severe opposition in the United States. Republicans, led by Henry Cabot Lodge, threatened to kill the treaty if Wilson did not provide provisions to preserve the Monroe Doctrine, as well as a means for the U.S. to leave the organization if it so desired. There were major concerns in the United States that the League threatened American sovereignty. Furthermore, there was a group of so-called irreconcilables, Republicans who opposed the League in any form. These included Hiram Johnson of California and William Borah of Idaho. Some argued that this opposition gave both France and Britain the upper hand when they were negotiating with Wilson. Either way, the final version of the treaty negotiations saw the delegates at Versailles separating the League of Nations from the actual treaty due to growing unrest in Europe and some of the colonies. 
The final signing ceremony was held in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles on June 28, 1919. Germany had agreed to an armistice for a peace based on the 14 points, but now was being forced to sign a treaty containing only about four of the original 14. Germans believed they had been stabbed in the back, as it said, by the Allies. I'll let you decide if that's the case. Um, Wilson, for his part, was forced to compromise some of his less cherished points to get his most cherished item, the League of Nations, approved. Are you a fan of the show and you're looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, Next Level American History Podcast is Liberty Classroom. This is a fantastic site for parents who have kids and want to enhance their learning or for adults who are lifelong learners like myself. Go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com. On the right side, you will see a linked photo or an ad for Liberty Classroom. Click on that bad boy and you're ready to join. You'll find courses on American history, but also on Latin American history, economics, logic, and many other subjects. All of them are taught by fantastic teachers and professors whom I trust. People like Tom Woods, graduate of Harvard and Columbia Universities, Bradley Berzer, Robert Murphy, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbener, and many other fantastic scholars. Seriously, this is an amazing site. If you're looking for a way to learn the things they didn't teach you in high school, unless you had me as a teacher, of course, then this is the place for you. Finally, if you click on that link, the American History Podcast gets a kickback. So it's a great way to support the show, and it costs you, the listener, absolutely nothing. So get on over to the website, click on Tom Woods' mug, and in no time, you'll be on your way to an amazing education. But before we move on, I'll bring up the words of one critic of The Way the War Ended, John Maynard Keynes. Writing in Economic Consequences of the Peace in 1920, he said, According to the French vision of the future, European history is to be a perpetual prize fight, of which France has won this round, but of which this round is certainly not the last. For Clemenceau made no pretense of considering himself bound by the 14 points and left chiefly to others such concoctions as were necessary from time to time to save the scruples or the face of the president. The policy of reducing Germany to servitude for a generation, of degrading the lives of millions of human beings, and of depriving a whole nation of happiness should be abhorrent and detestable, even if it were possible, even if it enriched ourselves, even if it did not sow the decay of the whole civilized life of Europe. End quote. Now, interestingly, a majority of Americans initially favored the Versailles Treaty with the League of Nations. However, Republicans remained opposed to it. Senator Lodge wished to amend the treaty but at first had no hope of defeating it. But what worked in his favor was the fact that the document got bogged down in the Senate. Furthermore, if you remember, while a majority of Americans approved of the treaty initially, the more people learned about it, the more they disliked it, as heavily favored the desires of the British and the French empires. Thus, it looked like Americans were doing the bidding of the European colonial powers. Wilson, in the fall of 1919, went on a speaking tour to drum up support for the treaty. Now, the president feared that any Republican modifications to the treaty would encourage Europeans to also make modifications and amend the League out of existence. This led Wilson to appeal over the heads of the Senate, so to speak, and go directly to the people by conducting a grueling speech-making tour. Physicians and friends urged Wilson not to do this, as his health was not the best. However, he believed that the public favored the treaty, but he miscalculated the interest of the public in a treaty that was not modified. Now, the irreconcilable senators, Bora and Johnson, followed him to each city uh, a few days later with the Republican view. Wilson ended up collapsing in Pueblo, Colorado on September 25, 1919. Several days later, a stroke paralyzed one side of his body, and he would not meet with his cabinet for nearly eight months as he attempted to recover. 
In the end, Senator Lodge, unable to amend the treaty outright, wrote 14 formal reservations to it. They reserved the rights of the United States under the Monroe Doctrine and the Constitution, and otherwise sought to protect American sovereignty. They focused on Article 10 of the League as it morally bound the United States to aid any member who was attacked. Congress was concerned by this, as it wanted to reserve the power to declare war for itself. Of course, these days, the last thing Congress wants to do is to preserve its power. They'd much rather just let the president or the Supreme Court do things, and then they can either take the credit or take the blame. But um, I digress. I should say place the blame, but I digress. To make things worse, Wilson rejected the Lodge reservations as they weakened the entire treaty, or so he believed. He ordered Democrats to vote against the treaty with the Lodge reservations attached. He hoped that when these were cleared, the path would open up for ratification without reservations, or with only mild Democratic reservations. In the end, the treaty was rejected in the Senate by a vote of 59 to 55 to 39. Now, ironically, 80% of the senators favored the treaty, with or without reservations, and Wilson could have had his treaty, although with amendment. Instead, he wanted it his way, and thus went for all or nothing. However, the story of the treaty isn't quite over. It came up again in 1920, and again Wilson urged the treaty be defeated. His scheme was to make the presidential election of 1920 a referendum on the treaty. This was a bad idea. Some historians believe his ill health made him intransigent on the issue of the treaty. Either way, the Democrats lost the election, and the League of Nations was never ratified by the United States. Further, a separate peace was signed with Germany and ratified on July 25, 1921. So let's quickly discuss World War I and the long-term international results. First, the United States became the world's economic and political leader, notwithstanding the idea of its becoming an isolationist country. Now, if you've heard me before, the idea um, that it's isolationist is stupid. Okay, The reality was it wasn't simply acting as an imperial power and trying to impose its will on other nations. This is basically, it's a pejorative designed by pro-American empire neocons, and sadly latched onto by historians who ought to know better. Um, and we will have none of that nonsense here, because this is my show. Secondly, the Russian Revolution created the world's first communist country, which henceforth exerted a tremendous impact on world politics up until 1991. Third, Britain, France, and Austria, and Turkey all went into various states of decline. Finally, Germany was devastated by the Versailles Treaty. German anger over the treaty would lead to the eventual rise of Adolf Hitler and World War II. Now let's discuss the political aftermath of World War I in the United States. The first thing is the War Industries Board was dismantled. Believe it or not, the progressives wanted to keep this board around. They hoped to continue government regulation of the economy, and this was their method for doing so. The second major after effect was the Esch Cummins Transportation Act of 1920. This act forced the federal government to return the railroads to their owners in 1920 and even encouraged the railroad industry to consolidate. Furthermore, the ICC, or the Interstate Commerce Commission, was now geared to guarantee the profitability of the railroad industry. This is typical of progressives and shows how little they understand economics. There is no way that you can guarantee an industry will be profitable. At best, it's hubris. Finally, some progressive reformers had hoped that railroads would remain nationalized, which was an old populist idea from the 19th century. But of course, they were disappointed. The third major piece of fallout was, sadly, race riots in red summer of 1919. These were spurred by black migration to northern cities during the war. 
He also had the Chicago race riots of 1919, where 23 blacks and 15 whites were killed. About 500 people were wounded and 1,000 families were left homeless. Major riots also took place in Knoxville, Omaha, Washington, and many other cities. The Red Scare in late 1919 and 1920 was, in the end, aimed against radicals and labor unions, many of whom were thought to be secret communists. This brings us to the election of 1920. The Republicans nominated Warren G. Harding of Ohio. The platform was ambiguous on the League of Nations, while Harding himself spoke of returning the country to normalcy. On the other hand, the Democrats nominated James M. Cox of Ohio. He strongly supported the League of Nations, and his running mate was Assistant Secretary uh, of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt. The result was that Harding easily defeated Cox 404 to 127 in the Electoral College. This election was notable as it was the first presidential election where women had the vote. It also, for at least a time, marks the end of progressivism. The public wanted a move away from idealism, moral overstrain, and self-sacrifice. Furthermore, the forces calling for a humbler foreign policy, one that had less intervention, won on the issue of the League. The Senate also rejected a security treaty with France, who then undertook to build a powerful military in the face of increasing German power. Germany, itself afraid of the French buildup, embarked an even more vigorous rearmament program under Hitler, going so far as to actually begin working with the Soviet Union, believe it or not. Now, some historians link all of this to the outbreak of World War II, but I'm going to leave that for season four. Finally, I want to discuss the impact of the war on American society. First, let's talk about women. They played an increasing role in the economy and volunteerism for the war effort. Um, some worked in factories. You also had the prohibition of alcohol, thanks to the 18th Amendment, which passed in 1919. The Great Migration of African Americans to the North was another result, and that sadly led to large-scale riots, as we mentioned before, especially during Red Summer. A fourth result was increasing nativism. Severe immigration laws ended up being passed in 1921 and 1924. As a matter of fact, the U.S. Border Patrol was created in 1924. A fifth effect was the suspension of civil liberties during the war, thanks to the Espionage Act. Thousands of strikes occurred, and sadly, this disgusting law is still in the books. Indeed, both un under both Obama and Trump, you've had people prosecuted using this law, including, but not limited to, Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden under Obama, and Julian Assange by Trump. You also had the first Red Scare and the first anti-communist crusade, and this really sets the United States on a collision course with the Russians during the Cold War. Then there were the millions of men who left home to fight in Europe many of whom returned with the scars of that experience. An eighth effect was an increase in patriotism and volunteerism during the war. A ninth effect was the aforementioned election, and finally a booming economy in the 1920s. But was it really booming? Hmm, stay tuned. Okay, well, that's all for this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Until next time, take care, and have a great day. If you like the sound of the American History Podcast, my audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.